So the case here really hinged on the classification of a witness as an expert, okay? How do we know that somebody who's going to testify on behalf of the church is a witness? Hello and welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Hey, Josh, this past month you, uh, you reviewed several uh, cases that churches were in court with. And uh, did, what was a, a pattern that you began to see? You know, it's really interesting to see how these cases uh, tend to come in groups and categories, uh, and a lot of them have to do um, with the same topics. And interestingly, not all the time do the courts agree. Uh, sometimes uh, you're dealing with the same issue, and you would think the courts would uh, agree on the, the proper outcome, but they don't always. And so, you know, there's three really big categories that we need to pay attention to this week. The first one is there have been a lot of property issues, a lot of property disputes uh, that were reported uh, in the last month. And so, Pay attention to those. We'll be talking about uh, property damage incidents and uh, what happens when a neighbor causes that versus natural disasters. And so it's important to, to talk about that. Uh, there have been an increase in employment law problems. Uh, you know, interestingly, this is the first year that I'm aware of in which employment disputes made it into the top five reasons why churches go to court. Uh, and there were several employment disputes that were uh, reported in the last month. And so pay attention to some of those as we talk through uh, proper things that we need to do with employment. And anytime you talk about church employment and the courts, you're going to have to talk about our third category that we see here. And it's a lot of cases this month on the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, which basically is the First Amendment rule that says courts are not going to get involved in internal church disputes because they'll have to uh, interpret church beliefs or rules or ethics, and they don't want that entanglement uh, with the church. There are some ways that they'll get into it. There are some ways that they won't. We're going to see cases in which the courts have refused to get involved in a church dispute, and we're going to see a case in which the church said, or the court said, you know what, uh, we're going to get involved in this, uh, and we're going to make some decisions that uh, affect the church. So, a lot of interesting stuff this month. Um, hope everybody uh, learns from these cases. Absolutely, we're excited about that. So let's go ahead and jump into the content right now. All right, welcome back to another episode of Churches in Court on the Law and Church Podcast. We have a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about property damage. We're going to talk about employment issues. We're going to talk about the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, which continues to come up over and over and over. We're going to talk about governance issues in the church, bylaws and so forth. We're going to talk about contracts. We're going to talk about sexual abuse in the church. And then we're going to close out with a recent religious liberty case. So let's jump right in talking about some property damage cases. This first one is Greater Hall Temple uh, Church of God versus Southern Mutual Church Insurance Company. And this is actually an insurance dispute, uh, but it has to do with church property damage. Uh, the church believed that some water damage that the church had suffered was due to a hurricane and the wind damage from that hurricane. The insurance company said, no, you don't have proper flashing, you don't have sufficient downspouts, so the water pooled and that's what, what caused all this. So the case here really hinged on the classification of a witness as an expert, okay? How do we know that somebody who's going to testify on behalf of the church is a witness? Well, the Supreme Court tells us that. It's called the Daubert Rule, and it says that an expert must be qualified to testify competently, okay? So they have to know what they're doing. They've got to be, have some qualifications. They have to use a methodology to reach conclusions that is reliable, 
And then finally, the testimony that they're going to offer has to help the jury understand some scientific or technical or specialized information that is going to be introduced into evidence. All right. And so in this particular case, one of the experts that the church called uh, testified that he didn't have any experience with wind damage on this particular style of roof. All right. And there's different ways you can build roofs. And the way this one was built, it was a kind of an older way of building a roof, and he didn't have any experience on assessing wind damage on that type of roof. In addition, he also uh, used a method of inspecting uh, the, the roof that the court said, you know what, that's just not a reliable methodology. Nobody does it that way. And so the court said, listen, that person is not an expert witness, and I'm not going to allow that person to testify because, number one, they're not qualified. They don't have any experience with this type of roof. And number two, the methodology they use to reach this conclusion is not reliable. So that person is not an expert or an, an expert. All right, so then there was another expert. The church said, okay, if that person can't testify, we've got this person who, who's going to testify. Um, the, the methodology reached to use... Uh, this expert's conclusion was common sense, he said. Uh, I used common sense to see that this was wind damage. Well, the court found that's not uh, a good enough methodology. Common sense is not a methodology. Uh, and so the court said, listen, you, your methodology isn't reliable. But then when you look at his qualifications as well, uh, he said he was self-taught in roofing. Uh, he had a minor uh, in engineering from college. And so there was nothing here that was going to allow that person to testify as well. So all of the expert witnesses got kicked out, uh, and they were not accepted as witnesses at trial, which really means that the insurance uh, company's experts are probably going to be the ones who control that case, and they're probably going to win. So the takeaways from this, number one, if there is any kind of issue or incident in the church that requires you to call your insurance company, make sure you get good, independent experts in on the case quickly, all right? If there is property damage, get an expert contractor in that specific style uh, and that particular type of damage. You've got to get them in there early. Uh, one of the issues in this particular case is that the expert waited six months to go out and inspect that damage. Well, you can't wait six months and expect that your methodology of, of reviewing that is going to be reliable. So much can happen in six months, right? So you've got to make sure you get these guys in early. You've got to make sure they know what they're doing. You need to check their credentials, uh, and you need to make sure that they're independent of the insurance company because that insurance company is going to have an expert witness. And if there's a dispute, you want to make sure that your expert gets to testify. Let's move on to another one. This is Miller versus Vicksburg Masonic Temple. It's another property damage case, and I know this doesn't involve a church, but it does have some good information in it. All right, in this particular case, a landowner built a ditch right along the property line, and he had the lodge's permission, permission to do so, but he built this ditch. He maintained the ditch. He mowed it. He uh, took care of it, um, and then rain erosion started kind of eating away at the wall of that ditch to the extent that it eventually damaged the property of the Masonic Lodge. And what the jury and the appellate court found here uh, is that the defendant was liable, the, the guy who built the ditch. Neighbors have a duty to uphold each other's land, all right? And so you can do just about anything you want to on your property. You can build a ditch. As long as you're complying with code and zoning issues and so forth, you can do just about anything you want. But you have to be in a situation where you're not going to harm somebody else's property, all right? And uh, this guy, again, built a ditch, paid for the ditch, maintained the ditch, presented a plan to repair the ditch when it was started to cause damage to the lodge. And so the court said, listen, this is sufficient to prove that you're going to be liable 
for the damages to the church's property. So you have a responsibility as a church to make sure that your neighbor's uh, property is well taken care of and that you're not damaging that. They have a responsibility to make sure that they're not damaging your property. Uh, this is really what we call a nuisance case. And where we typically see nuisance cases involving churches, unfortunately, is uh, in uh, the, the sound uh, and the noise that comes from the church. Uh, I'm aware of one case where uh, the, the police were called multiple occasions uh, and the church was told to turn down the music on Sunday mornings. They didn't do it, and the pastor of that particular church was uh, cited. Uh, they issued him a, a misdemeanor citation. Uh, for a noise violation or for a nuisance. And so uh, you've got to be, um, be careful in that. You've got to take care of your neighbors and be, be good corporate citizens there. All right, let's move on to some employment cases. This first one is NRAE First Christian Methodist Evangelistic Church. Uh, this is an employment dispute in which a pastor sued his church for breach of contract after the church had fired him. Now, procedurally, this is a really interesting case because it is at the appellate court on what we call a petition for writ of mandamus. This is an extraordinary writ. Uh, it is uh, an appeal before uh, a trial, uh, and it's very, very hard to get a mandamus uh, writ issued or any other kind of extraordinary writ. It's supposed to be difficult. And basically what a mandamus writ is, is you go to the appellate court and say, listen, this circuit judge, uh, this trial judge, this executive agent refuses to do their job, refuses to do what they know they're supposed to do. And it's such an egregious thing that we're going to ask you now to order this person to do what they're supposed to do. All right. And so it's very hard to get that done. And the, there's a, kind of a mixed bag here, all right? The bad news is, is that there, there was a trial court ready to set aside the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine and say, we're not going to um, abide by this thing where we can't get involved in church disputes. The church was arguing, rightly so, that this pastor was fired for cause, and basically firing this person for cause was based on theological and uh, ethical tenets that were specific to that church's beliefs. And, you know, a court can't get involved in that without deciding theological and ecclesiological issues. Um, and, and so that was what the church was arguing. The uh, pastor was just saying, well, this is a simple breach of contract. We had a contract and they breached it. And the, the trial court was ready to say, um, yeah, even though, you know, the, the dispute is over whether he was fired for cause in, in violation of the tenets of this particular church's faith, uh, it is a contract dispute and I'm going to hear it. The good news is, is the appellate court said, no, you're not. Uh, they came back and said, listen, you're going to get so entangled in theological issues that you, you just can't separate church and state at that point. And uh, we're not going to get overly entangled here like the First Amendment says. And so the appellate court kicked it out. Now, here's the deal. Under the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, courts in some circuits and in some states treat this as a jurisdictional issue, meaning the court does not even have the jurisdiction to hear the case. And that was the case here, all right? They said, you don't have the jurisdiction to hear this particular case, all right? Uh, and those cases involve things like theological controversies, church discipline, uh, ecclesiastical government, conformity of members to the standards and beliefs and conducts of the church, the selection of clergy, all of those things are too ecclesiological, too theological for us to be able to say, listen, we're going to actually allow somebody, uh, some judge to get involved in that type of, of dispute. All right. Uh, the pastor was terminated for cause and, and as such, in order to make a contractual determination, the appellate court said, you're just going to get too involved. So this particular case was kicked out by the appellate court. Now, 
Let's take a look at a case in which the opposite was true. All right, the next case is Christian Methodist Episcopal Church versus Grimes. Again, another employment dispute. Uh, here, the church uh, hired a pastor, promised to pay him $600 a week in salary, but the church was really in some financial trouble here. Uh, and the pastor uh, here eventually agreed to defer his salary until the church was in a financially healthier position. Um, but the pastor never agreed to forego his salary, okay? Uh, and so he eventually voluntarily left his position. The church had accrued $165,000 in back pay. Uh, and when the church failed to pay him anything, he sued the church. Uh, now, they eventually settled that case uh, for around $80,000 plus attorney fees, and there was actually even some dispute about that. But the pastor filed a motion to enforce that settlement agreement, and that's what the pastor won here. The church appealed on several grounds, including this ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, and the court found that the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine here did not apply because the only ecclesial, ecclesiastical rules that the court would possibly have to interpret were procedural and administrative, not theological. All right, now that's a scary kind of argument. So you've got one court in the previous case in which the court said we're not going to get involved in these procedural or administrative things because it's inevitably going to require the courts to make judgments on theological and ecclesiological issues. You've got another court that says, well, from an administrative and procedural requirement, we can jump into those types of ecclesiological rules. All right. Um, so that that's kind of a dangerous dichotomy here. Which, which one is going to control? Eventually there'll be have, to, have to be higher courts that kind of make that decision and provide some clarity on where and when the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine applies. Uh, in this particular case, all of the other arguments that the church raised were kind of legal technicalities. They didn't have any merit. So the Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's award of $80,000 plus another $6,500 in attorney fees. So let's jump into yet another uh, ecclesiastical abstention doctrine case. Here, uh, this case is Friends to Restore St. Mary's LLC versus Church of St. Mary. And the plaintiff here sued the church under what we call a quitam action under the Minnesota Environmental Rights Act. And basically what quitam means is that a private citizen can citizen can sue on behalf of the king or on behalf of the government, okay? And the Minnesota Environmental Rights Act under which this particular action was brought allows for quitam litigation. And there are a few others that do that. The Americans with Disabilities Act allows for quitam litigation. And so here, uh, what happened is these plaintiffs were trying to get this church designated as a historical site, all right? But the problem was that the church buildings were seriously damaged by fire. Uh, then the fire suppression system kicked in and flooded the place. And to rebuild the church then would have required uh, substantial deviations from can uh, canonical law. This is a, a Catholic church. Uh, and it uh, would have required substantial amounts of money uh, in order to rebuild the place. And so what was decided was the church is going to be demolished and then we're just going to rebuild it. Well, for the court to get involved in that type of case would require an interpretation of canon law, all right? The bishop in this case controlled all property in the Catholic Church. So now you're, you're getting involved in this church's polity. You're getting involved in this church's hierarchy as a judge. And so the judge said, listen, I just can't hear this case. And the case was dismissed. Now, this has come up a couple of times for me, and just in the last couple of weeks, I've had some churches call me about, um, you know, they're, they're wanting to relocate or wanting to sell their property, and, and some folks in the, the neighborhood are wanting the church designated a historical site. And so this is a real issue and, and something that, uh, as we have church buildings that age and, and kind of develop this historic character to them, something that churches are going to have to consider. 
All right, let's jump into a church governance case, and I'm going to butcher the name of this case, but here we go. It is Ambilu versus the Ethiopian Orthodox Tehuadu Religion Church. All right, this is a church governance dispute. It's got some very novel and very disturbing issues that it brings up. The church won this suit, but these allegations, again, are really disturbing. Basically, the allegations are that there was a coup, uh, that there were people in the church that came in and took over. Uh, they kicked out all the elders, kicked out all the other church leaders, and they took leadership for themselves. Well, these leaders then turned around and sued the church and sued these people individually under a really novel argument. Uh, it's called the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. All right. The only other RICO case that I've been able to find involving a church uh, de- dealt with the, the cover-up of sexual abuse uh, in, in the church. All right? And so that there was fraud, there was um, intimidation, things like that going into trying to keep this sexual abuse scandal under wraps. And under those circumstances, a RICO violation uh, certainly took place. This is another example of Quitam litigation. And so basically under a RICO case, uh, the plaintiff has to show a pattern of some racketeering or some sort of de facto criminal conduct that led to damages. And ultimately, this case hinged on whether the facts of fraud, uh, the, the, the racketeering, were they sufficiently alleged in the complaint. Uh, and the court ended up finding, look, the criminal conduct that you're complaining of, uh, it required this church to lie and the people in the church to lie. But you plaintiffs who, who've been you know, kicked out of your office as elders or whatnot, you can't tell me the time, you can't tell me the place, you can't tell me the content of those lies. You're just saying that they're lying, and that's just not good enough when you're alleging fraud. When you allege fraud, you have to allege some specificity uh, as to how that fraud took place. And so the court kicked it out. Uh, there were a couple other issues that came up. One of the things was that these plaintiffs wanted to do what they called pretrial uh, discovery or pre-motion discovery. And basically uh, it said, listen, uh, if you'll allow us to go into the discovery process where we send them interrogatories or we do depositions, we'll be able to get that information. And the court said, no, I'm not going to do that. You've already made them spend all this money on an attorney. We're not going to do that. And they dismissed the case. So, uh, again, good outcome for the church, but some very uh, disturbing allegations and really novel issues uh, for uh, the the church to have to uh, deal with there. Today's featured resource for church leaders is Go Rogue X. If you are looking to reach your congregation outside of Sunday mornings, Go Rogue X will help you get there with live service broadcasting and content creation. They will consult with your team on equipment and training to make sure you have the best quality broadcast. They also handle repurposing of your weekly Sunday sermons into a blog, podcast, YouTube video, as well as bite-sized content for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Visit GoRogueX.com for more information. All right, let's jump into another sad case. Uh, This is the case of A.H., versus Church of God in Christ Incorporated. Anytime you see uh, a name abbreviated uh, by initials in a case, typically that means there's a minor involved, and that's exactly what happened here. Uh, This was the sexual abuse of several people in the church by a deacon. Uh, Now, this deacon was sentenced to two life sentences uh, plus another 75 years, and those uh, those two life sentences were concurrent. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they were consecutive, not concurrent. So in criminal law, if, if you're sentenced to multiple things, a lot of times they're going to run sentences concurrently, meaning if you got 
10, law, 10 years on this one case and another 10 years on this another case, we're just going to say it's 10 years. We're going to run those sentences concurrently. Under some circumstances, you can run them consecutively, which means you have to do 10 years, then 10 years. Well, here, he's having to do a life sentence, then another life sentence, and then they're going to add another 75 years on top of that. So this guy is uh, going to prison for the rest of his life. Now, in this lawsuit, one of the uh, of his victims sued this church and said, you know what, the people in this church and others in the church knew about the offender's prior sexual abuse allegations, and they did nothing to warn or protect others in the church. The pastor's wife in the criminal trial even admitted, yes, I knew there was an allegation against him, all right, admitted that in the criminal trial. Now, the church won this case, all right, and here's the deal. First of all, the court found that, again, there is no duty to warn or protect against acts of criminal assault by third parties, all right? And the reason that is is because under most circumstances, at least this is under Virginia law and there may be some nuances in other states, but under most circumstances, neither you nor I are going to be able to predict when there's going to be a criminal action against somebody that just happens to be on our property. We, we, we can't foresee that. And so it's unreasonable under the circumstances for that to be foreseen. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that rule. Number one, uh, if the church expressly assumes a duty to warn or to protect people um, of the, from these things, then they have to fulfill that duty. All right, They can't uh, assume that duty and say, well, we didn't have the duty. All right, So in this particular case, the court found, well, you didn't assume that duty. Uh, you didn't uh, get to yourself into a situation where uh, you had to warn and protect others in the church because even though you had policies and procedures designed towards uh, you know, the protection of children and you got background checks and all those other things that we know we're supposed to have, even though you had that, you didn't distribute those policies publicly. And the children did not have those policies. The parents did not have those policies. And as such, you did not publicly assume a duty to warn or protect anybody. All right? The second uh, exception is if there's a special relationship that exists between the church and the injured party, which imposes a duty upon that church to control the conduct of that party, then you're in a situation where, you know what, maybe it should have been reasonably foreseen. So in this case, the, church, uh, the court said, you know what, church, you did have that special relationship. This child's parents brought the child to church and placed the child in the care of another adult that was under the control of the church. All right, it's what we call in loco parentis. We have somebody standing in the place of parents. And so under this circumstance, because the person at the church, this deacon, could control the conduct of this child, uh, then under those circumstances, yes, a special relationship did exist. But the analysis didn't end there in this case. All right, so here the court found... Uh, that th there was this special relationship, but the court dismissed the complaint on, on, on several grounds. First of all, there was the complaint of negligent hiring. Did, was the church negligent in how they hired or brought this deacon on board uh, to the volunteer staff or the paid staff of the church? All right, And the court dismissed the negligent hiring case because it said, listen, there's no evidence, there's no even allegation that when the church hired this guy or brought this guy on as a deacon that they knew that there had been other sexual assault uh, or sexual abuse claims, all right? And so when they made him a deacon, they didn't know. And in fact, the sexual abuse allegations came later, all right? So the negligent um, hiring case was dismissed. The negligent retention case was dismissed, meaning they were negligent in retaining him and allowing him to continue to be a deacon. And the court's rationale here was, look, 
they knew there was an allegation, but they never knew the disposition of it. Uh, they never knew, uh, and ultimately on, on the prior allegation, he was never taken to court. He was never found guilty of anything. And so under the circumstances, the court says, listen, this church doesn't know one way or the other whether the allegation is true, and so we're not going to hold the church responsible for retaining this particular deacon when they didn't know the outcome of a prior allegation. All right. So then the court said there is no standalone cause for negligent supervision. All right. And that's just in Virginia. There may be some other states like that as well. But in this particular jurisdiction, no standalone claim for negligent supervision. You have to have other claims to add on top of that in terms of that employment relationship. And so the court dismissed the negligent supervision claim. All right. So the court is dis- dismissing this poor victim's uh, complaints one after the other. What the court did find was that this child, this, this uh, victim, could recover under a theory of emotional distress, but she was going to have to show that the church was negligent somehow. All right, well, we've already said the court found that they weren't negligent in hiring the guy. They weren't negligent in retaining the guy. They weren't negligent in supervising the guy because you can't have a standalone case. And so the court mentioned this in a really you know, kind of a tone that said, I just don't think you're going to be able to show that the church was negligent here, uh, that they had a duty under these circumstances. Uh, There was a dissenting opinion that would have dismissed that special relationship claim because the sexual assault couldn't have been reasonably foreseen by the church. Um, And so this is, this is kind of a broad victory for the church. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's the right decision. I think we need to be protecting victims, but under these circumstances, uh, the church won that. It seems like it won that case, or is going to win that case here soon. Let's jump into some contract law. Oxford Media Group Incorporated versus Family Worship Center Church Incorporated. This is a contract claim. Uh, the church contracted with uh, Oxford, the plaintiff here, to broadcast its content for one point eight million dollars a year. All right. The church sued under a theory called fraud in the inducement, and basically this required the church to prove that the plaintiff, Oxford here, made a statement that it knew was false in order to induce this church into a contract, that the church reasonably relied on those false statements, and that because of that reliance, the church suffered damage. It's called fraud in the inducement. Now, the outcome on this claim was in favor of Oxford on the on the plaintiff because the, the contract here could not be rescinded, all right? So you can win on fraud and the inducement if you can rescind the contract, but in this case, there wasn't airtime that could be returned to Oxford. The church had utilized that, that, that broadcast airtime. They couldn't turn around and give that back. It was already done. So you can't rescind the contract. Now you're just looking at damages. So what ha- should have happened here is they should have sued for breach of contract uh, rather than fraud and the inducement. Uh, Oxford here also sued the church, uh, they sued the church for breach of contract, and the outcome here was in favor of the church. Uh, in essence, uh, this media company's theory was that, listen, the conduct of the parties, the way we behaved ourselves, uh, established what we intended out of this contract. Uh, and what happened is that you know, there were some negotiations on raising the price, and the church sent more payments to the media com- company as they were going through this contract negotiation. Um, so... Because they were going through this renegotiation process, the court said, listen, it can't be inferred from your conduct that the intent was to renew this old contract. Uh, Your conduct suggests that, hey, we're going to go month to month for a little while until we see if we can get this deal hammered out. But there's nothing here that says we intended to just continue going on and renew this old contract. Uh, So that particular case against the church was dismissed. 
The church also sued uh, Oxford for something called unjust enrichment, and this is the theory that Oxford had unjustly retained the benefit uh, that harmed the church in a manner that violates fundamental principles of fairness and equity. And so, hey, there's no legal remedy here, but it's unfair uh, that the church or that this media company Oxford got all of this benefit, uh, and uh, it was at the church's expense. That's not fair. We want our money back. The unjust enrichment claim is an equitable theory. All right, and when you get into equitable claims and equitable uh, remedies in court. Those equitable remedies can only apply when there is no legal theory. Well, here there was a legal theory. It was a contract. Uh, so you can't claim unjust enrichment, meaning you unjustly took this, when you actually have a contract that describes what's supposed to be happening here. So that claim was dismissed. Uh, there are a few other issues that need to be hammered out in the case, uh, but it looks like each of, uh, of the, the primary complaints uh, in this case have been dismissed. looks like the whole thing is going to go away. All right, let's look at another contract dispute. This is First United Methodist Church versus Underwriters at Lloyd's. Uh, this is both a contract dispute but also an insurance dispute for some fire damage. Here, the policy documents uh, contained an arbitration clause that said we're going to arbitrate this. Now, when you agree to arbitrate, courts generally are going to enforce that, and there's state statutory and federal statutory language that requires courts to enforce arbitration clauses. So before you sign a contract, make sure you know whether there's an arbitration clause in there because you could be giving up your right to a trial by jury and forced to go arbitrate. Uh, what made this particular case even more interesting is that the insurer wasn't an American company. So the church sued in state court uh, under the this little-known convention, this little-known treaty called the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. All right, and what this convention does, it allows the insurer to remove a case to federal court. All right, and so instead of saying, "Hey," We're going to keep this particular case in state court. Uh, we want to move it to federal court, all right? And the court denied uh, the church's motion to send it back to state court, all right? And they granted uh, the insurer's motion to compel this arbitration, and then they dismissed this particular case, all right? And here's where I am on that. I'm okay with that. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6. We're not supposed to be suing each other, all right? So it's okay to arbitrate. And matter of fact, when I write severance agreements for churches or uh, other types of contracts for churches, I'm telling them, look, send this to arbitration, all right? There are Christian arbiters out there and, uh, that, that we can go to and, and we can hammer out our disputes. But listen, Scripture says we're going to judge angels. Uh, that, you know, if, if we're to judge angels, why are we taking our disputes to uh, the world's courts. And so it's okay, I think, to insist on arbitration. It's just a matter of making sure that the, the terms of that arbitration are fair. Here, they may have had to go to the United Kingdom in order to arbitrate this particular agreement under the circumstances. So um, make sure you're looking out for those arbitration clause. All right, let's jump into a uh, our final case here. This is a religious liberty case. We've got some news. Uh, this is Telescope Media Group versus Lucero. Uh, this is a case out of Minnesota in which some videographers objected to being required by a sexual orientation and gender identity law to video a same-sex wedding and then master that video and produce that video in such a way uh, that they would be speaking and producing a speech as defined by First Amendment law that's contrary to their personal uh, and closely held religious beliefs. Now, this particular case is far from over, but the court here found that the plaintiffs had the right to make videos 
only for opposite-sex weddings under the First Amendment's free speech clause. All right, forcing them to make these same-sex wedding videos would be compelled speech. The government is requiring you to say things that is contrary uh, or that are contrary to your particular religious beliefs. Um, the court dismissed an equal protection and a void for vagueness claims. They remanded this to the district court to consider whether it should issue an injunction prohibiting the state of Minnesota from uh, enforcing this particular uh, law against them. Um, and ultimately, they wanted to make, make it clear that it appears like these videographers' First Amendment rights had been violated. There was a very strong, very lengthy dissent, and a certiorari petition has been filed with the United States Supreme Court this month uh, regarding the Flores case out of the Upper, uh, uh, the upper Northwest. And so, again, I've got to predict that we're going to have some major religious liberty um, case law come out of the United States Supreme Court here shortly. We've got a split in jurisdictions, and that's ultimately uh, usually what the Supreme Court um, factors in in determining whether or not they're going to take a case as they look. Do we have different state courts that are deciding the same issue in different ways? Do we have different appellate circuits that are deciding the same issue in different ways? And if so, the Supreme Court typically is much more uh, amenable to jumping in and taking and hearing a case um, than it usually is. Uh, certainly, the more courts that have decided this, that can speak into it for uh, these judges and the Supreme Court justices to review, the better. Uh, they typically like a, a lar large volume of case law at the lower court level for them to review and kind of consider all viewpoints. Uh, but here we do have a split in jurisdictions, and that split is growing. Uh, there, there are courts all over the place that have, have decided this particular issue of free speech differently. So I suspect here in the very near future we're going to have major religious liberty uh, case law come out of the United States Supreme Court. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Churches in Court. We hope to see you next week. Goodness, Josh, that is uh, just really insightful information. Uh, any final thoughts on what you just covered? You know, my, my favorite case was uh, that case with the, uh, the RICO claim uh, where they were trying to, um, you know, claim that these church leaders who kind of instituted a coup in the church uh, were racketeering and all this other stuff, you know, and, you know, it led me to that, that point, where else have uh, churches been subject to RICO claims? Uh, you know, and the only one, other one I could find uh, was uh, when there was an intentional cover-up of sexual abuse cases in the church. Um, and so that was a really novel theory, but that kind of leads us into what our topic is going to be for the next couple of weeks. And I'm really excited uh, that for the next two weeks on the podcast, we're going to have Gregory Love from Ministry Safe on the podcast. And we're going to be talking about sexual abuse in the church and mainly sexual abuse prevention. It's going to be very, very important that we talk about that. Uh, and if you want to get some free forms and some free sample policies and documents that deal with sexual abuse in the court, go to churchgeneralcouncil.com backslash one zero CIC. Uh, and there you're going to find links to all these free forms that have to do with sexual abuse prevention and sexual abuse uh, response in the church. So go out there, check that out. And listen, especially these next coming weeks where we're talking about uh, child abuse in the church or sexual abuse in the church, would you do us a favor? This is going to be an, a, a shameless plug here. Would you 
like and review and subscribe to and share this podcast so that other people can hear this content. The next two podcasts are just great in terms of the information they provide to church leaders. So let's get that out there to as many people as we can. And and your subscription, your sharing, your reviewing and, and liking it and putting it out on Facebook and Twitter, that all helps more church leaders get access to uh, the great content Gregory Love is going to provide for us next week. Absolutely. We're very excited about that too. Josh, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on at Church General Council. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about our do-it-yourself suite, the DIY suite. You know, this is the same software that is available in our client suite. Uh, the only difference is it just doesn't include access to an attorney. Uh, a lot of churches want to do things on their own. Uh, there are a lot of churches that have the know-how to systematize their processes. They just don't have the proper resources in place to get it to where everybody who needs to have access to those policies and processes have it. So uh, what what we can do is we can provide our uh, policy manual to you that you can go in and customize just without legal access. Uh, that is available to churches, and it's half the normal price for churches. You just need to use promo code CHURCHNP when you sign up for it. That's CHURCHNP uh, for nonprofit. And ultimately what you can do, you can get out there, you'll assign and automate all of your training of your staff and volunteers based on the processes for legal issues, for personnel, whatever, all the way going to just how you do ministry. Uh, You can assign that and automate the training on that. You can document every process you've got. There are are ways that you can integrate this with other apps that you might use like Slack and uh, Constant Contact and so forth. There's so much you can do with this. So go learn more at churchgeneralcouncil.com. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week.